Just a greeting, a, a, greet, a wintry greeting to all of our campuses, thinking of all of you at our Bolingbrook campus and 95th Street and Wheaton and Hobson. Good to be with you. I, I have a memory of when I was eight years old. My folks took us to Disney World. Oh, man, I'll never forget the joy of that. Though much joy, there was one ride that was a profound disappointment. And that ride is still existing today. It's called Tomorrowland Speedway. Some of you actually have been on here. And I was sold as an eight-year-old. Hey, you interested in racing a sports car? Yeah. You mean as an eight-year-old, you're going to give me the wheel of a real gas-powered sports car? Yeah. And I just bought in. I was so excited. They were overselling the ride back then. They're still overselling it today. I went on the Disney website, and I'd like to read to you how this ride is described today. Ready? Hop inside your very own hot rod race car and strap yourself in for an exciting and challenging drive. As the checkered flag is waved, you're off. Put the pedal to the metal and speed around... (laughs) Speed around the sharp bends of a racetrack modeled after the famed Indiana Motor Speedway. Race against family members and friends to see who is first to cross the finish line. Come on! I'd say I I got in my car, you know, heart pounding. I go, I can't believe this. I did strap myself in. They did say go. I did put the pedal to the metal. Put, 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 put. They got these speed regulators on these buggers that make them go five miles an hour. Come on. At first I thought my car was broken. I'm like, come on, what's going on? Then I looked and I realized we're all going five miles an hour. And then I thought, well, I got a guy behind me who's even going slower, so I'm going to do a lane change and get around him. Not so. There's a metal track that can you steer? Yeah, you can wiggle back and forth. You know, tink, tink, you know, it's ridiculous. I was so disappointed. Folks, sometimes the Christian life feels like that. Sometimes we read the brochure called the Bible, and we see this super-powered miracle drama going on in the Bible, and then we look at our actual experience and feel a little bamboozled. I mean, look at the Bible. I, you start thinking about it. The Old Testament's full of drama, miraculous drama. Moses parting the Red Sea and the nation walking through on dry land. Uh, they were in the desert, got thirsty. God said, Moses, touch the rock with your stick. Touch the rock. Boom! Water shoots out of the rock. This gusher that uh, became the head of a river, giving the people water. There was one point where there was a bunch of people in Moses' little flock that were uh, grumpy, grumpy congregants. God made an earthquake, opened up a crack in the ground, swallowed the complaining people, and closed. I'm just saying, you may want to take note of that one. There was a, Elijah one time was, was debating the prophets of Baal, these false prophets, and they had a contest that whose God would light the meat on the altar And Elijah cried out, God, light the altar. God sent so much fire from heaven that not only was the meat consumed, the rocks disintegrated, the whole altar was gone. I mean, that's good stuff. Then you get to the New Testament, and Jesus does miracles all over the place. You know, they ran out of wine at the wedding. Jesus says, take water. Boom, turned into wine. 
Jesus walked on water. How, how amazing is that? On the Sea of Galilee, walking on water, calms the storm with his voice. Jesus fed 5,000 people with one kid's sack lunch. Jesus, at the end, I mean, there's so many more, I don't have time, but at the end of his earthly life, as he said goodbye, he said, all right, one more, just as an exit show. And he ascended. The Bible says he, he just started flying up into the clouds. I mean, the miracles of Jesus were extraordinary. And then even after Jesus went, we have the book of Acts that tells us what those first Christians experienced. And the good stuff keeps rolling. Uh, For example, Paul was riding his horse one day and a bright light shone out of the sky so bright it knocked him off his horse. God spoke to him. He was blinded by the experience. It led to his conversion. And then Peter was put in jail for his faith at one point. And talk about a jailbreak. An angel showed up, broke him out of jail, and freed him. Philip, one of the followers, was transported miraculously from the city of Jerusalem to a city 40 miles away, just like that, instantaneous transportation. There was a kid who was listening to Paul preach, and this kid fell asleep up in a second-story window, and he broke his neck and died. The Apostle Paul ran over to him, prayed, and this kid was resurrected from the dead in that moment. Speaking of like healings like that, the people in the book of Acts, they're healing people of every illness imaginable. In fact, they were so good at it that it says that if you touched the Apostle Paul's handkerchief, no kidding, he had a hanky. And apparently so much power was in Paul, it was in his hanky, that all you had to do was touch his hanky and you'd be healed of whatever ailment you were dealing with. Peter as well. They said in the Bible, it says that if people simply had the shadow of Peter cross over them, they'd be healed of their sickness. I mean, this is good stuff. And then we turn to my life and my shadow ain't doing much these days. Maybe you look at all this stuff in the scripture and you're like, it's not my experience. What's wrong? And here's what he asked. What's wrong with me? Do I lack the faith? Am I a bad Christian that I don't see this supernatural stuff going on? Or you get disillusioned with God. And you say, this is a bait and switch, man. You, you describe one way of life, and I'm looking at mine, and it doesn't match. And it can be really bad. I, I remember a real dark season in my life where my aunt came to me for prayer. She had cancer as a young woman. She was grateful to have a nephew who was a young pastor, me. And she said, pastor, nephew, pray for me. I'm healing. And so we as family got together and we prayed for God to heal her miraculously. And she got worse instead of better. What's wrong with me? I see it in the Bible. Why can't I do it? She determined that maybe we didn't have enough faith. And she got airplane tickets to fly to a distant city to attend a spectacular healing event by some TV evangelist where he filled an auditorium with sick people. And on the TV, you know, it showed him just one after another healing everybody who came up. Well, my aunt didn't get healed. and She died. And stuff like this, you know, where you're like, what's going on? Why isn't it working for me like it did for them? Can be profoundly negative in its effect on one's spiritual life. Folks, we need to understand the miraculous. So in this series on the Holy Spirit, it only makes sense that we have a week called the miracles of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the one who brought miraculous power in the biblical times. And so we need to understand this facet of what he does. 
And we're going to look at many passages. I'll warn you, uh, this is kind of going to be a pretty intense study. And so you may want to jot down some of these passages, look at them later if you can't get your mind around them fully now. But the one we're going to focus on as our main text is Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. Hebrews 2, verse 3 starts this way. This salvation, and I should clarify that it's referring to the reconciliation with God available through the cross of Jesus Christ. That's this salvation. This gospel message of how people can get right with God. This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. And God also testified to it, that salvation, by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit. Let's, let's highlight uh, these words here first. God also testified. The word the testify there means to validate or to prove. God proved the message of salvation. That's the it. God proved the message of salvation by a number of things including gifts of the Holy Spirit. I want to start there. I'll get to the others in a moment. But gifts of the Holy Spirit. That's what we studied last week. Do you remember? We looked at the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I defined them as the divine enabling where God gives us a supernatural ability to serve him at the local church with greater effectiveness than we'd be able to on our own. Very helpful definition, but it doesn't tell the whole story. That's what scholars, or actually the Bible has called the edification benefit of the gifts. It edifies. To edify means to improve or bring betterment to people. That's what that function of the gift. It betters the people and the church. Edification. But there's another function of some of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and that's what this is referring to. That other function is called the sign function. You know, we'll use the word sign. We'll say, show me a sign. What we're asking for is some miraculous uh, intervention that makes us realize, oh, that's what I should do, or that's what's true. It's proof. That's what's being referred to here. We see that. God also testified or proved or validated the gospel message through the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Some of the gifts of the Holy Spirit have a proof or sign function. And what are those gifts that have a sign function? They are the gifts of tongues, interpretation of tongues, healing, the gift of healing, and the gift of miracles. And I just need to hit the pause button to acknowledge that there's a lot of debate surrounding those sign gifts. And some would argue, many Christians, in fact, we have lots in our church, on our elder board, and our staff would say, no, those sign gifts are no longer operative today. They functioned in the first century, but they no longer are operative today. Others would say, no, all the gifts that are operative then are still operative today. Interestingly, our denomination, the Evangelical Free Church of America, articulates in its theological statement that we embrace both positions, meaning we choose not to divide over this matter. And so I would hope what's true of our denomination would be true of our church, that we would choose not to divide over whether those gifts are for today or not. I thought I'd share my own personal opinion, and that is I do believe, I actually have a nuanced uh, opinion, I do believe those gifts still operate today in their edification role. Edifying, remember that's building the church, improving. I don't think that they're operative in their sign function today. 
sign. That's the proving that it's true function. Why I believe that will become clear as our message progresses. But uh, the gifts of the Holy Spirit can, or at least then did, function in part to uh, prove that it's true. You may wonder, well, if, if you think it's edifying today, what is tongues? So I'll pause just for a moment. I've never spoken in tongues, but I've got dear friends who have, and they would describe it kind of like the Bible does. The Bible says that tongues, first of all, it's, it's the ability to speak a language you've never learned. And they would describe it as, as they seek to praise God or worship God in their, their little worship time or prayer time, they can't find the words. You ever been frustrated? You got the passion of the heart, but you can't find the right words to say it. And they would describe the Holy Spirit as giving them the ability to express their praise, their prayer in a non-English language. Most of the time it's viewed as like an angelic language, a heavenly language. It's gibberish to others who might hear it, but to them it's deeply meaningful. In fact, Scripture says that my mind is unfruitful, but my soul is fruitful. My mind's not translating the the passion into English, but the soul's going direct to God with the Spirit enabling. Interesting. Now, that's the edifying function of tongues. The sign function of tongues, or the proof function of tongues, was seen back on Pentecost. Pentecost, we've already studied. That was the day in Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit originally came to Christians. Remember the tongues of fire on their head? Well, they also started speaking foreign languages that they had never studied. In fact, the believers spilled out to the streets of Jerusalem, and there were many foreigners in Jerusalem for a big festival. And the foreigners heard these Jerusalem people speaking their native language flawlessly, and they're like, how do they know that? And they realized this is a miracle they were seeing going on here. That's the proof function that the gift of tongues. I had mentioned the gift of, of healing can be both ways. Healing can bring personal benefit. That's where I'm sick and God heals and I benefit. But healing can also have a proof role, a sign role. I think of when Peter in the book of Acts walks into Jerusalem and sees a guy who's been lame uh, for his whole life. This lame guy is begging for money. And Peter looks at him and says, silver and gold I have none, but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ. Get up and walk. And boom, the guy's healed of his handicap and immediately stands up. The whole town of Jerusalem, the Bible says, was abuzz. People realizing this Peter is legit. His message must be true because it's proven. See how there's a edification or improve your life in the church function. And there's a sign or prove, improve, prove function. All right. Well, that's helpful, but that brings us to these three words. We need to highlight them next. God also testified to it, the gospel message, by signs, wonders, and miracles. Signs, wonders, miracles. Signs, wonders, miracles. This three-word formula is found many times in the New Testament. When I say three-word formula, sometimes it's two of the three words. Sometimes it's all three. For a while there, I I thought that those were three different supernatural deeds of God. And I don't think they are. I think, and scholars would attest to this, that they're actually three characteristics of all supernatural works of God. They each highlight an aspect of God's supernatural deeds. Let's go through them to try to gain that understanding. Let's start with miracles. 
Miracles, the very word means, in fact, I'll give you an official definition. A miracle is a divine intervention, intervention of God, that suspends or alters natural law. You know, life is governed by natural law. You shouldn't be able to walk on water, and yet Jesus walked on water. You shouldn't be able to fly in the air. Jesus flew naturally into the air when he ascended into heaven. And you see, that's a miracle. We sometimes use miracles, the term, too frivolously. We'll, we'll go to Jewel and we'll find a parking place and say, it's a miracle, I found a parking place. It's great that you found a parking place. It's not a miracle. A miracle is when natural law has been suspended or altered. Just for your clarification, providence is like miracles but different. Providence is also God's divine intervention. But providence is when God intervenes, but he does not need to suspend or alter natural law to intervene. Providence will be like when God guides you or provides for you or works in the circumstance of your life, and you say, that's God. You're right, it is God. It's providence. It's not miraculous if he's not altering natural law. See, there's a difference between miracles and providence. So the miracles are like that should not be able to happen, and it happened. So that's the word miracles. This word here, wonders, refers to the effect that miracles have on people. It leaves them in a state of wonder. The Bible's filled with these verses that say the people were amazed, astounded, in awe. I can't believe what I just witnessed. Do you see that? That's how it affects people. And then this word, signs, is what we've already talked about. And that's the function of the miraculous to prove or validate God and his message. And so we begin to see these three words are, uh, shouldn't happen. It's a supernatural power of God doing something that by nature shouldn't happen. Leaving people in a state of awe and proving to them that God and his messenger is legit. All right. Well, I got curious as to uh, these combinations of signs, wonders, and miracles. How often are they in the New Testament? Here's what I found. 21 times, 21 times, two of these three words occur together in the New Testament. And I started looking at these 21 times saying, who was it that was doing signs, wonders, and miracles? You wouldn't be surprised to know that Jesus did 10 of, no, I'm sorry, 11 of the 21 times. You know who did the other 21 times? The apostles let me just show you some verses that point to this. Acts 2.43. Every, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Later on in Acts 5.12. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. Again and again and again I see it's either Jesus or the apostles in the New Testament who are attributed to doing signs. Now, I should clarify that I include Stephen and Philip as apostles. There's some debate on those two guys, but I think it's clear from biblical evidence that they were also apostles. You should know that. The apostles were not just the 12 disciples. Yes, the 12 disciples took on the role apostle, but others carried that title too. And so you may wonder, well, what is an apostle if they're the ones who were doing all the signs and wonders and miracles? And so let me tell you what an apostle was. It was a very important role. From Scripture, we learned that the word apostle means literally sent one. 
And yes, they were sent by Jesus Christ himself. Jesus had looked at him and said, I commission you, I send you. And in that commissioning of Jesus, they became an apostle. In addition to being sent by Jesus, they had to be a witness of the resurrection of Jesus. All the apostles had witnessed the resurrected Christ and could testify it's true. So by nature of that requirement, you learn that the apostles, that role ended back in the first century as people, as time progressed and no one was alive who had been witness to the resurrection. There were no more apostles by nature of that requirement. Interesting. Apostles were a huge role. I, I found another verse that connects apostles with signs, wonders, and miracles. Let me read 2 Corinthians 12, 12. Paul speaking. He says, I demonstrated among you the marks of a true apostle, including signs, wonders, and miracles. Isn't that interesting? So I mentioned the prerequisites of becoming an apostle. You had to be sent by Jesus. You had to be a witness of the resurrection. And apparently here, you had to prove it by operating with signs, wonders, and miracles. This just shows us that these signs, wonders, and miracles were uniquely characterizing by this group called the apostles. If you could do those things, you were proving you were an apostle. Interesting. I started to say, well, is this connection between Jesus and the apostles, was that in our original verse that we're studying? Let's look at it now. Hebrews 2, verse 3 and 4. Sure enough, it's here. Let me show you. The salvation gospel message, which was first announced by the Lord, that's Jesus, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Commentators agree this is a reference to the apostles. They were the ones who first heard him and then relayed on to us what they heard from him. The Lord and the apostles are the ones connected to the signs, wonders, and miracles. That's here as well. Here's what I realized. Upon my first reading of of the New Testament, I thought to myself, seems like all Christians are operating with the supernatural power. All Christians have got shadows healing people and hankies that heal. No, it's not true. Uh, God may have been working, in some cases, miraculously through ordinary Christians, but what Scripture describes is that the apostles and Jesus are the ones who regularly and consistently enjoyed miracle-working power. Interesting. And then that got me thinking about the Old Testament. What about the Old Testament? Did everybody in the Old Testament, if you were a follower of God, were you doing all these great miracles? This was a shocking discovery to me. I discovered that there were 46 miracles in the Old Testament that had human agency. When I say human agency, I mean a human was evolved. God did it, obviously, but through a human. Like Moses touching the rock with his staff. Moses is the agent. God's the one who brings the miracle. 46 of them came through human agency. Of the 46 miracles of the Old Testament, 42 of the 46 were done by just four guys. 42 of the 46. Do you know who those four guys were? Moses and his successor, Joshua. Those two were contemporaries. They did a bunch of them. And then Elijah and Elisha, two prophets from the Old Testament, also contemporaries. Moses and Joshua, it was about a 60-year time frame that all this miraculous outpouring came through their lives. Joshua, or I'm sorry, Elijah and Elisha, they were contemporaries. Elisha following Elijah. 
and it was about 60 years, that all this miraculous outpouring came through those two guys at that time. And I'm like, wow. So the Old Testament tells 2,000 years of history of God's people, and yet the vast majority of the miraculous is concentrated at particular times and with particular people. And I, and I go, that, that is really curious. Why, is, is the next question, why, God, are you doing all this outpouring of the miraculous with certain people and at certain times? Is there a reason behind why God operated the way that he did? And I believe there is. In fact, as we go back to our verse, I'm going to highlight now next, this salvation was testified to by signs, wonders, and miracles. Salvation, this is the gospel message. God also testified to the gospel message. To testify means to prove it. God proved the gospel message through signs, wonders, and miracles. Sure enough, the principle of God using miracles to validate his message is throughout the scriptures. In fact, next slide, it says here, miracles validate message. We saw that in Hebrews 2, 3, and 4. Here's a couple others. Acts 2, 2, or 22, says of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. Accredited by God to you means validated to you from God through miracles. Not only Jesus, but the apostles. Look at Acts 14.3. The Lord confirmed the message. He validated the message of his grace by enabling them, in this case the them is the apostles Paul and Barnabas, by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. Sure enough, again and again, we see God is validating the message and the messenger through this outpouring of the miraculous. I see that in the New Testament. Does that make sense also in the Old Testament through Moses, Joshua, Elijah, Elisha? Sure enough. Let me show you the next slide. Here again, miracles validate message. Here are the miracle workers that we've recognized in Scripture. And here's the message that was validated. This is all the Bible. You should know that the Bible, the Old Testament of the Bible is often referred to as the Law and the Prophets. The Law and the Prophets. The Law being the first five books or the Pentateuch, which is full of law. And the Prophets being the later part of the Old Testament where the Prophets write. And here's what we discover. Moses and Joshua, Moses was the author of the Law. So these guys enjoyed an outpouring of the miraculous to validate the arrival of God's message or his scripture. You know, people were spouting religious truth all the time, and they needed to know, how do we know what's really God's? Good question. The miraculous validates, and God brought the miraculous to validate the law. Elijah and Elisha were prophets. In fact, they're kind of like the heroes of the prophets, and they come at the beginning of the season of the prophets, and sure enough, God, in order to validate the prophets, he had an outpouring of the miraculous in these two early prophets so that we'd know the prophets are, in fact, yes, from God. And what about the New Testament? Who's the author of our New Testament? Jesus and the apostles. The apostles authored or authorized all the books of the New Testament. And sure enough, outpouring to prove and we begin to see, and I, I mean, we're speculating in some ways, but God strategically says miracles, the miraculous. God goes, of course I can do it. I could do it all the time with everybody, 
But God says, that would not be best for my salvation strategy. And God says, the times when the miraculous are most appropriate are when I'm confirming my message so that they know this is the Bible. And sure enough, he's done it very purposefully at these key junctions through key people. Now, you say, well, that's profoundly discouraging because I'm not an author of Scripture. I'm not at a time when Scripture is being authorized. And therefore, you may say, so God's not going to do any miracles through me. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying that. I do believe God still does the miraculous today. Uh, If I were to define my conviction, it would be this, that God still sometimes does the miraculous to bless people. That's kind of the edification value. I don't see God doing miracles as proof or sign function like he did in the Old Testament. I know that there are some evangelists who want to get on TV and say, watch me heal this person to prove to you all that God is real. I mean, God's done that. But I'm not buying that that, just from Scripture, how God's operating today. He may heal and bless somebody, but to turn it into a sideshow, I think kind of misses his whole Point. Now, you still may be discouraged, and you may say, well, now that I know there's no guarantee of a divine healing, why would I pray for a divine healing? I mean, and the, the apostles, they had it good, you know, their shadow, their hanky, they just said the word, boom, 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 everybody got healed, and you're telling me that I probably shouldn't expect that frequency of healing. That's right. Well, then I'm not going to bother praying for healing if I can't know what's going to happen. Uh, I, here, Knowing that God God calls us to pray for the sick and to ask him for healing. Knowing that sometimes he will bring that miraculous healing is sufficient reason for us to ask every time. I'll I'll use a baseball analogy. I'm thinking of home run frenzy that's going on in Major League Baseball these days. You may not be aware, let me tell you. Last season in Major League Baseball, there were more home runs hit than ever before in the history of the game. Even beat the record this last season of the steroid era records where they were artificially pumped up. And so the baseball guys are trying to figure out why did this last year, did we break the all-time record? And they've come up with this conclusion. Guys are not satisfied with singles and doubles anymore. They are swinging for the fence every time they come up to bat. Here's a picture of a home run hitter, Anthony Rizzo on the Chicago Cubs. Loves, I guarantee you, every time he's coming up to bat. He's thinking home run. Now, I could counsel Anthony and say, Anthony, you're expecting a home run. You shouldn't. You should know this. Home runs are fairly rare. The majority of the times you come up to bat, you will not get a home run. And so lower your expectations. You know what Anthony Rizzo would say to me? He'd say, Jeff, stick to preaching. He'd say, Jeff, he'd say, Jeff, you're right. Most of the times you don't get a home run, but some of the time you do. And some is enough for me because home runs are so extraordinary that if they'll come some of the time, I'm going to approach the plate with expectation and swing for the fence. Folks, when we pray for healing, we know that, hey, we don't get it all the time. Maybe we don't even get it most of the time, but we get it some of the time. And so swing for the fence and pray for the miraculous. And God may just do that. I'll, I'll share another story in my life. Uh, My father-in-law, you may recall, passed away this last April at the age of 81 years old, very suddenly, unexpectedly. Well, it turns out at 81, 
31 years earlier when he was 50, so my age, I'm 49, you know, kind of the same age, he got cancer at 50. Bad, really bad. I was dating my wife at the time, remember, like it was yesterday. We were panicked as he had huge cancer surgery to remove this intestinal cancer that he had. The surgery did not go well. It shut down his digestive system. And he couldn't digest food, and he started wasting away. He went from like 180 pounds to under 100 pounds. He was skin and bones, hard to look at. And after weeks of failing, the doctors pulled the family in and said, say your goodbyes. We give him 24 hours to live. That's our guess. And in that moment, not that we hadn't been praying before, but we just felt this is it. If God's going to do a miraculous healing, it's now or never. And so we cried out to him once more. We gathered around the bed, laid hands on him. Friends from church came over, and we said, Lord, if you don't save him now, he won't be saved. And in the, we, swung, we swung for the fence. And through God's power, we hit a home run because he was miraculously healed. Suddenly, at that moment, his digestive system suddenly and inexplicably just fired up. The doctors can't say what happened, but he started digesting food. He started gaining weight, and he lived 31 years of robust health without any health problems during that period. It was, it was a miracle. Now, what happened last April? He died. He had a massive heart attack, and God didn't save the day last April. God took him home. And so there's this open-handedness to this thing where we say, Lord, I don't know what you're going to do. I'm going to ask, knowing in faith, that if you want to heal, you can and will. But God, I also ask with submission and say, your will be done. And I trust that if you're going to take them home, know this, God, I still trust you. I still love you. I will still worship you. If you show up with the miraculous, I worship you. If you do not, I trust you and I worship you. I believe that's the posture the Bible calls us to, as it relates to God's miracles today. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for Scripture. And Lord, not just casual readings of Scripture, which could be misleading, thinking that miracles should happen all the time like they did back then. We thank you for in-depth reading of Scripture like we just did, where we really look, what does the Bible say? And Lord, would you please right-size our expectations regarding the miraculous. Some of us never pray for the miraculous. Lord, call us to step in and cry out to you for healing for loved ones as you tell us to. Lord, I guess some others were hoping it was going to happen every day, every time, and they're disappointed in themselves or in you. Right-sized expectations. God, may our expectations of your miraculous be exactly what you tell us to expect in Scripture. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.